Okay, uh, Revelation chapter 5 is where I'd like you to turn this morning if you're not already there. All right, so I'm going to talk about the upcoming um, election. And so don't be afraid though, okay, no matter which side you're on in terms of things. Um, The only thing we have to fear is truth. And so I was going to title this series, Let's Get Political. And I got nervous about that for some reason. I don't know why I did, but I did. Um, because I, I think many people have a tendency to say, well, you know, I'm kind of a, I don't get caught up in that stuff. I'm above politics. And I'll just remind you, there's only one being that is above politics, and that's God himself. One of my favorite verses from Psalm 46, I believe it's verse 10. It says that God is above politics, above everything. You and I are not above it. We are in the midst of it. And I think many people, sometimes I think proudly want to say, well, I just don't get involved in politics. Well, yes, you do. Okay. Uh, by participating or not participating, you're involved. You're making a statement. You're saying what you believe. You're saying what you care about and what you don't care about. So I just want to just kind of set that down as a stage, as a stage for our discussion. All of us are involved in this. We are citizens of a country called the United States of America, which is a representative republic, where we have the privilege and I believe the responsibility to participate in the system as Christians. What I want to do is kind of address this morning the larger issue from Revelation 5. And then over the next couple of weeks, I want to touch base on a couple of the issues that I think are important for us in terms of biblical thinking about how we approach the upcoming election, because that's the world we live in. And, and so I want to say this. First of all, and this, these are things I typed out so I would be clear, okay? Number one, we should not put our head in the sand and say we don't care. I think Matthew 5 takes that option off the table. Okay, and I realize this. I realize that people that are the age of my children don't care. I understand why, because I hate the discussion that seems to be panic-based and driven by fear. So I understand why they draw aside. But I also believe that a lot of their drawing aside is because they have been taught in a world view that is postmodern, that basically, whenever you get into discussion about things that matter to you as a parent and they don't care, they say to you, whatever, right, whatever, which means, end of discussion, I don't want to talk about this, this doesn't matter to me, okay, even though it does affect them, and so I, this idea of sticking our head in the sand saying, I don't care, it doesn't affect me, simply isn't true, it does affect every one of us, and Matthew 5, 13 and 14, I think Jesus is clear. He left us here to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That means this. It means I can't stick my head in the sand and say, I don't care. I mean, I can't be an obedient Christian and do that. Okay, I live in a world where morality matters, where truth matters, where it comes to bear on daily decisions that we make. And so at some level, I I am forced by my position as a Christian to engage in the culture, and to influence, because that's what salt and light do. 
So stepping on the sideline, I think we just need to simply say to one another, is not an option. We live in a country where we have the privilege, the dignity, the opportunity, and I believe the responsibility to exercise our influence as Christians in voting. Now, I'm going to tell you this. I'm not going to tell you how to vote. I'm going to talk about issues that the Bible addresses. The Bible doesn't tell me to tell you how to vote. If you ask me how to vote, like on the side, we'll see what happens, okay? I may give you my, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I don't, I don't mind saying that. And I think I can say this too. If you don't vote and if you don't engage in the process, if you don't become informed, be quiet. Okay? Just if you're stepping aside, step aside. But understand that when you do that, I do not believe you are exercising a Christian option, nor are you fulfilling your Christian responsibility to be salt and light. It may feel comfortable and elite to say, well, I just don't get involved in politics. I would prefer to call you a liar, because we all do. By stepping out, we have influence. And by stepping in, we exercise influence. Secondly, we should be informed biblically and should vote in a way that reflects our biblical convictions. We should be people who believe something. Okay, and I believe that God's word gives us guidance in numerous areas that are on the platforms today and that should at some level affect how we cast our ballot. Okay, because those issues are of concern. They affect your kids in school. All right, young people, you get these issues addressed all the time. Issues of sexuality, issues related to marriage, issues related to the value of life, many things like that. Okay, and we'll also talk about broader issues of justice and caring for the poor, which are important and often left out of the discussion while many people want to stand strong on the other moral issues. I want to broaden the debate for you a little bit. I don't desire to create issues, but to deal with a few that are on the table so that ignorance will no longer be an excuse for the church. The third thing I would say is this, just as this is preliminary stuff, okay? Third thing I would say is pray. Pray. And if you don't pray, I think I kind of want to say to you and myself also, then be quiet. If we don't beseech the throne of God, and yet at the same time proclaim boldly our opinions about things, I think there's something of an imbalance going on there. Okay, we are commanded by God to pray for our government officials. And I'm going to tell you something, I don't do that enough, okay? And I feel conviction in saying it, so I'm putting it out there as I say it, okay? As a man who fails in that area, we ought to be people who pray for those that serve and lead in our country. Today, I want to deal with the big picture. It's an election season, and it is, I believe, an important one. There are lots of tensions present regarding the stability of nations around the world, uh, Hopefully you didn't draw comfort from all the uh, stuff that took, this, took place this week at the United Nations. Um, I wasn't encouraged by the unity that I saw there, and I'm not saying that about any country in particular, but I didn't come away from watching uh, reports on the United Nations meeting filled with hope that things are going to get better. There are also large concerns globally about the economy, which seems to rest on the very sharp edge of a knife. Uncertainty is easy to come by. Unrest is present in many countries as we speak. And that threatens the whole picture of the world that we live in because our world has become globalized. So what happens in one country cascades, affects other much larger entities. The issues of our day, however, are not easy to deal with. 
the moral mood of the country is at best disconcerting and at many levels very disturbing. I understand that a quick survey of early news is not a way to promote a good night's sleep. There are good reasons for concern in the world that we live in. Which brings me to a question for you this morning. Are you optimistic about the future of our world? Are you optimistic about the future of our country? I'm going to be pretty honest with you this morning and say I think it's hard to be optimistic in light of the trends that didn't start eight years ago. Okay? There's trends that started a long time before that. And so my question this morning is this, as a Christian, can I be optimistic? Can I have a positive outlook in terms of the future? Recently heard a man named Danny Aiken speak, president of Southern Seminary, and he told a story of an experience he had at the University of Texas. Had a professor who held to an anti-supernatural, that is an atheistic worldview, that there is no God and that everything that exists exists by chance. He was asked this question by a student. He was asked, what do you believe the future holds for mankind? That's a, that's a great question. Because this morning, I'm going to presume to answer that question. What do you believe the future holds for mankind? Here's what the man said. And this, I believe, was a very honest and transparent answer in light of world history. Here's what he said. He said, I am not very optimistic. When I look at history, he said, I discovered that man has not treated man very well. <laughs> Is that not like the ultimate understatement? But true. But true. He says, when I look at the contemporary world, I discover that not much has changed. I'm not very hopeful about the future. I believe the future holds for mankind, he said, certain destruction and potential annihilation. Pretty blunt. He said, I have no reason to be optimistic about the future. I would argue that I think he's actually a pretty well-informed man. When you look at world history, I hope you don't step back and say, you know what, that's encouraging. Most of the story of history is not positive. It's negative. When we talk about the era from 1930 plus to 1945, what do we talk about? Wars. We don't go back and say, look at all these great things that happened in that era. When people review our time, they'll talk about unrest in the Middle East, trouble everywhere, financial concern, all kinds of things. And isn't it true that much of the content in your history books really details the really sad things that have been done by humanity? That's amazing to me, which means that this man's observation is, it's not like, man, where are you coming from? It's like, wow. I understand exactly why you would feel that way, looking at the world that you and I live in today and that people have lived in for history. I think if you ask me, am I optimistic about the future? My answer would be something like this. If the future is in the hands of fallen men, I am not optimistic. I'm not. People don't give me cause for hope. Am I at times amazed and encouraged? By the sense of the image of God that rises up in people and that reaches out to care for people. Yes, I've experienced that in my own life. Situations have been stuck and you find somebody exercises towards you a kindness that is stunning. Yes, that happens. 
But is that the norm? Is that the bent? Is that the direction of the world that you and I live in? I think the answer to that question has to be very clearly no. I live in a world where schools have to keep implementing rules that probably sometimes seem absurd to deal with issues like bullying. Why? Well, because people are basically good. No. I live in a world where security companies do quite well. I live in a world where I, when I'm at the mall, I lock my car. Why? I don't trust people. Okay? When I leave my house, usually, well, not very often actually, should try to lock it. I think to myself, well, you should have locked the door. Okay? Why? I don't trust the world that I live in. I don't trust humanity with my future, with my security. When my daughter Erica got on a plane yesterday to get ready to down to North Carolina and visit a college friend, my wife and I said to her, make sure you what? Text us, call us when you get there. Why? Well, because I trust people. No, because I don't. I know I live in a world that's broken. I know I live in a world that's fallen, that injures people, that wounds people in ways that are devastating to their lives. That's truth. That's reality. Should I be pessimistic? I think this text, Revelation 4 through 5, cries out against pessimism. I think it stops on the head of pessimism. And I think it seeks to raise a standard of optimism in the church. Which is why, if, if you hear me at times, particularly for people that are 50 and above, which I am today, if you sense in me a reluctance to engage in negative political discussion, you're absolutely sensing accurately. Okay, the, the, the pessimism, there are just times that I, I just want to say, God, help us to be people of hope. I mean, if John on the island of Patmos could write this under the Roman Empire and be utterly and completely optimistic, then why can't I? In the world that I live in. And I think the answer is this. John had a view of Christ. John had a perspective of Jesus. That absolutely transformed him. As a man in prison. In exile. In a cave. On an island. Writing a book. He got a view of Christ. God gave him a book called. The Revelation. Not of John. As the King James Version says. But as the first verse of the book says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what I want to say to you this morning is this. When you get a clear vision of Jesus Christ, not the one bound by time, but the one that is indeed eternal like he is, you will become an optimist. You will still face struggles and difficulties in the context of time in your life. But you will begin to be a person who has an optimistic view of your world. Because you know who's in control. And you're not captured by and enslaved to fear over the future and circumstances that come into your life. Now, I want to say this as I move into these chapters. The book of Romans is a strange book, or Revelation is a strange book. So when you read through this text that we're going to look at, you're going to get hit with a couple things. You're going to say, what is that? Okay, never thought of him in this way. Okay, there, what you find in it is this. Truths of heaven and history communicated through strange images pictures, illustrations, metaphors. What is God doing? God is bringing the truth of heaven, the cosmic picture, into the realm of humanity. And he does it in the book of Revelation through what we would call apocryphal literature. 
okay, heavily laden with images and pictures that communicate realities and truth, okay? So what I want to do is work through the text from that angle. If you want to think of the book of Revelation as something like the movie Avatar or Lord of the Rings, where everything is imagery, everything is picturing something else, okay? That will help you to understand how this book works. If you've seen the Chronicles of Narnia, where you have animals talking, you're going to get deja vu here, okay? Because in this book, animals talk, okay? Weird things happen. What is it about? It's about a bigger truth, a greater picture that God is seeking to communicate to us by His grace. So the imagery can be strange. Now, I want to work through just chapter 5. Okay, chapter 4, God on His throne, God the Father. Chapter 5, God the Son taking His throne. Okay, and then the Spirit of God wraps in the midst so that you see this Trinitarian view of God exalted... In a difficult context, the purpose is to bring to the people of God a spirit, a heart that is indeed optimistic. Okay? There's two truths here that should, for you this morning, kill fear, kill pessimism, and just cause to rise within you, even if it's a faint flicker, a fire, if you will, of optimism, of hope, that things are going to be okay, that God ultimately is in control. And that I don't need to be stricken with fear, immobilized by worry and anxiety. Which I think is how many people live. Like looking over your shoulder, wondering what's going to happen next. I want to urge you to, to be free in your walk with God because of who Jesus Christ is. So two thoughts. The first one's going to be Jesus controls history. Therefore, you and I should be optimistic. And the second thought will be Jesus brings victory. Therefore, you and I should be optimistic. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. Jesus controls history. Verse 1 of chapter 5 says, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that is the throne from chapter 4, God the Father, a scroll, and he's the ultimate authority, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Okay, and the first question that comes to mind is, okay, what's this about? What's this scroll in the hand written on both sides, full and sealed? Okay, let's just pick up at this real quick. A scroll in the New Testament era was a document, typically a title deed or a plan, one of the two. Okay, usually a title deed symbolizing some degree of authority or a plan that is to be implemented at a certain time. Okay, a last will and testament. It is full of information. In this case, the scroll is sealed. That is, the information on it that talks about the future plan is inaccessible. And what's needed is someone who is authorized to come to the throne and to take the scroll out of the hand of the king on the throne and to implement the purposes and plans of the king. Okay, that's the, the idea of verse 1. A scroll is in the hand of the sovereign of the world. And as John is looking, there's a desire for someone to come who can open this scroll. Now, here's the question. What's in the scroll? Okay, I'll take you back to Daniel chapter 12. After Daniel receives his picture of the future from God, what does God say to him? Daniel 12 and verse 3. God says to him, Daniel, write it on a scroll, seal it up, and don't let anybody see it. That's the first time a scroll is mentioned in this sort of sealed way. All right, when you come to Revelation chapter 5, there's a difference. The scroll has been brought out. It's in the hand. It's offered 
for someone to take it, to tear off the seals, and to reveal history. Okay, what is the history in the book or in this scroll? I believe the history in the scroll is the rest of the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, a picture of Jesus. Chapters 2 through 3, the church of Jesus today and then. Chapter 4 and 5, a sovereign God exalted over all things. Chapter 6 through 21 is what? It's three pictures. Okay, and I borrowed these words. The first word is, it is a picture of God's judgment. Okay, it is first of all a picture of God's judgment. Secondly, as you move through the book, and you'll see if you read through Revelation, it'll be clear to you. This is difficult stuff. This is heavy. Also, you will find a picture of redemption. In the midst of all the heaviness, what do you find? You find people being redeemed, symbolized by the 144,000, I believe in Revelation chapter 7 and 8, and then at a couple other places. So there's redemption in it. At the end, what is it? Chapters 21 and 22. It's a story of restoration. You started reading Revelation 21 and 22, and what do you start seeing? You start seeing images and pictures that look a whole lot like the beginning of the Bible. Sounds like Genesis chapter 1. Okay, so there's judgment of sin, which in your heart, you all want this. You don't want it personally, but you look at the world you live in, you look at the struggles, you look at the bad things that people do. In your heart, what do you want? You want justice. Secondly, what do you want? You want salvation. Because you realize the sin that's present in the lives of others is your sin also. And then what do you want? You want restoration. You want a relationship with God as a result of redemption where he brings you back into a new relationship with him. So this scroll, I think, captures those three ideas. Ending in a glorious and final restoration. Okay, so it's the plan of God. What's the problem? Verses 2 to 4 give you the problem in this text. A tension now rises. He says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Who, who is qualified? Who has the moral purity? Who has the integrity? Who has the authority to take the scroll, open it, and then put it into effect? That's the idea of a will and testament. It's opened, not just so that knowledge is exposed, but so that action can take place. So that the directives of the last will and testament can in fact be implemented and fulfilled. The problem in the account is what? Verse 3. John says, but no one in heaven or on earth. What is it? it heaven and earth is just a picture of all of creation. There was no one who was found who could open the scroll or even look inside it. Amazing statement. What's John's response? To this problem, okay? That there's no one worthy. Why is this fascinating? It's fascinating because in verse 1 of chapter 4, what did God say to John? John, come up here and I will show you things that must take place. John, come up here and I will encourage you. I will give you an optimistic view of things. But then the scroll's put out and no one's there to answer it. So what is John's response? Verse 4, I love the way the message says this. It says, I wept and wept and wept and wept. Why? Why? Because John was in touch with the realities of a broken world. And the realities of a broken world were bringing to John a heart that was broken, a heart that was sad. And so he wept and wept. In response to that, you find a prohibition. 
Okay, and notice what it says. So John sees this scroll. He sees no one to take it. That's the tension. And then he finds in verse 5. Then one of the elders who was gathered around the throne said to me, John, do not weep. The word literally in the original would be something like this. John, stop crying. Stop weeping. He's weeping in the imperfect. He's sobbing. He's sobbing. And the, and the, the elder comes and says, John, knock it off. Stop. There's more. And he says to him, and I love this, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and to tear open its seals, to reveal the context of the book, and to put it into practice. Now, what is that saying to us? Well, when it says, see or look the lion, okay, that should, if you're familiar with Old Testament history, that's going to stop you in your tracks, because two fundamental texts are going to come up in your mind. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10. Okay, the royal kingly tribe of Israel is the tribe of Judah. That's marked out in Genesis chapter 49, 10. A ruler will come from Judah. Points forward ultimately what? Well, in this case, John, as he writes the book of the Revelation, is tying that kingship to Jesus. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. But then notice what he says. He is the root of David, which takes me back to what? 1 Samuel chapter 7, and I believe it's Isaiah chapter 41, where this tree, the kingdom of Israel, is cut down, but from the root there comes up a, a, a stem, a sucker that grows off the side of it that becomes a branch of righteousness, which is what? The kingdom of Israel is destroyed in judgment. God raises up a new Israel under the power and authority of Christ in righteousness. And so as John hears this, he says to him, look, look at the line of the tribe of Judah, Old Testament connection. He is the root of David. What has he done? He has triumphed. Okay, which is to say what? He is expressing, he is experiencing, he is bringing to bear great victory that dries up tears. That's the, the picture that God presses upon John. God's plan seeking to bring what? A prohibition to pessimism in John, encouraging optimism as he looks for this lion. Why the lion? Why is the lion, in this case, the picture that points forward to the ultimate ruler, King Jesus? I believe for this reason. That the lion is the king of the beasts that pictures dignity, majesty, and power. And what does John say? John looks to see the lion. And what does the elder say to him? He says, John, the lion has triumphed. The word is nikao. We get our word Nike from it. He is, he is victorious. Okay, he has established his authority. He has triumphed. And here's what I believe. I believe John needed to see this vision just like you and I often need to see this vision. Why? Because life's hard. Life is difficult. There are times that life beats you up. It gives you difficulty. It causes you to struggle. Sometimes we don't see God's plan. John couldn't. He was right at the place where it was to be revealed, and he starts weeping. Why? Frustration. Tears of sorrow. Why? Because he wants to see the plan of God unfolded. And it looks like it might not happen. And so the elder comes along and says to John, Look at Jesus. 
Look to the Lamb who is the root of David, who is from the tribe of Judah. Look to the Lion. Look to His authority. Look to His power. He has already triumphed. Which to me is an amazing statement. Victory is already present in Christ. He is in control of history. An old song comes to my mind as I think about this statement. Look at the lion. He is already in charge. Remember the old chorus? He's got the whole world in his hand. I think that's the picture that emerges here. For John, as he, as, he, as he rests his head in tears, is caused to look up. When he looks up, he sees the lion of the tribe of Judah. Okay? Who what? Who controls? Who has uncontested authority? He is the king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. Jesus controls history. The other thing I love is this. God doesn't say to John, you know what, John? You need to suck it up. You need to get over it. Grow up. Stop crying. You know what he does? He points him somewhere. It's it's not stoicism that gets a Christian through the struggles of life. It's Jesus. Okay, it's Jesus. Second truth that emerges comes from verse 6. Jesus brings victory. And there's there's a strange twist that occurs here. Because in verse 5, John is told, stop crying, look at the lion. Verse 6, what happens? He says, then I saw a lamb. They're like, what just happened? Look, the lion. John says, okay. I see a lamb. Which is what? It's the other picture of Christ that the Bible uses constantly to point to the victory that Jesus Christ brings. The lamb in the, in the New Testament and throughout the Old Testament clearly is something that points forward to Jesus. 28 times in the book of Revelation, the word lamb is used to identify Jesus. And you know what it is? This will be strange to you. This is not the warrior lamb. This is the pet lamb. This is the lamb that was brought into the house for examination during Passover to be slain to preserve life. The one who would stand in the place of every sinner. Throughout the Old Testament. And then in the book of Revelation. This theme, this picture. Jesus, the Lamb of God. He, John 1.29 says, and this is John earlier, he takes away the sin of the world. So when John looks at this Lamb, he rehearses the words of John the Baptist that he already recorded, it recorded in the Gospel of John. Behold the Lamb of God. Same thing that the angel says to him now. John, behold the lamb. You wrote about him. Remember him. Fix your eyes on him in this season of trouble that's driving you to tears. Look to the lamb. Who is this lamb? Well, he's described with a couple words. They're verbs. He is looking, verse 6 says, as if it had been slain. And then what's the next word say? Standing. Okay, what's up with that? Looking as if slain, standing. Okay, both of the words are in what we call the perfect tense in the Greek language, which means this. An event occurred in the past. That event in the past has an abiding effect in the future. Both words in the same tense. Okay, he has been slain with an abiding effect and result He 
has taken his stand, victorious, verse 5, with an abiding effect and result. What's the picture? Okay, slain with abiding effect. And here's one of the things that emerges out of this that is absolutely fascinating. Because if you ask yourself this question, in eternity, will Jesus Christ bear the scars of crucifixion? Will he bear wounds as reminders? I believe this text makes very clear that the Son of Man, for all of eternity, will bear the scars that perpetually speak of redemption. John looks at him, he says, I saw him as if slain, but he's standing. It's two things. It's the meekness of Christ and his suffering. It's the majesty of Christ as the lion, bound up together, bringing what? Courage, confidence, hope, consolation to the people of God. Like this is it's just an incredibly powerful picture. Jesus, who brings victory, he was slain, yet he is standing. Through his death, what did he do? He conquered the power of sin, all of my sin. And through his resurrection, he defies our fear of death. Folks, that's a glorious thought. The one that was slain is standing for you. He bears in his body permanent reminders of all that he has done for you. And I think he looks at us and says, what are you worried about? What troubles you today? Look, look, rich wounds yet visible above we sing, right? Why? Why are they rich? Because they speak. Slain with an abiding effect. Risen with an abiding effect. What's the abiding effect? Hope. Hope for all people. Hope for all who will trust in the precious blood of Christ. Now, The rest of verse 6 is interesting. It says, I saw him standing in the center of the throne. Where is he? He is sovereign. He's encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. That's exactly what's said of God the Father in chapter 4. So he's in this place of absolute sovereignty. Then it gets strange. He had seven horns and seven eyes and seven spirits of uh, of God that were sent out into all the earth. All right, what's this? Can I be honest? This is scary Jesus, right? I don't know if any of you uh, young people ever saw this in junior church or Sunday school. You ever see a picture of Jesus with seven eyes and seven horns? You're running out, bam! Jesus is different. <laughs> what happened to Jesus? Okay. This is scary Jesus. And it's meant to be apocryphal. It's meant to paint a picture Okay, think of NFL teams. Okay, I'm familiar with the team, my team. The Philadelphia what? Eagles, not the Sparrows. Right, it's the Philadelphia Eagles, the Atlanta Falcons. What's the picture? It's the terror, fear, right? The New York Giants, right? Well, are they? Doing pretty good lately, okay? Got a great quarterback, Okay, but what's the, what's the word? It's apocryphal. You don't go there to watch falcons fly around in the stadium. You go to watch people who can run like falcons, who have the effect of falcons. These pictures are powerful. He has seven horns. What's a horn? It's a sign of honor and power in the Old Testament. Go read the book of Ezekiel. Read through the rest of the book of Revelation. Read through the book of Daniel. What you will see is the horn becomes a symbol of power, of sovereignty, utter authority. He has seven of them. Why? 
Because in the New Testament, particularly in Revelation, seven becomes the picture of perfection or of completion. He has ultimate authority. And then he has seven eyes. Which, when I think of the picture, the horns are scarier. But when I think of the seven eyes, it's, it will sober you. Seven eyes are the eyes of the omnipresence of God. Who sees everything? Folks, look. Was it last Monday night Green Bay played their football game? When was it? It was Monday night, right? And they lost through a bad call from the ref. Why? Because the refs can't see everything. And so what did the whole country do that loves the NFL? It just erupted, had a heart attack. Right? Why? Yeah, that can't happen. The NFL's too valuable to have that happen. What was, what was the problem? The problem was those refs didn't see everything. Why? Well, they don't have seven eyes. They, they don't have that capacity to see. But when John sees the vision of Christ that God gives him, he doesn't give him the man Jesus. He gives him this fascinating, apocryphal picture. So that John would sit down in his cave and say, you know what? If, that who's, if that's who stands behind me, I don't have anything to worry about. All of the injustices that put John on the island of Patmos in exile, guess what? Jesus knew about every one of them and would bring justice. Which meant what? John didn't have to panic. He didn't have to panic about the president, about the emperor, about Caesar. Why is God doing this? Why does God give him these pictures? So John will sit back and say, I have Jesus. Jesus is utterly amazing. I can relax. I don't have to worry. How comforting is it for you that when you face injustice at work or when you face struggles in your marriage at home that nobody else knows about, unfair treatment at school, rejection young people, when you face that stuff and what you're wondering is, does anybody see this? Because most of that taunting and bullying and things that are said are said in private. They're said off to the side, out of view, and indeed they are. But they're not out of the view of Christ. When you face injury and criticism, when you're unloved by your mate, when there's secret pain in your life, sometimes you just need to know somebody is aware of what I'm going through. You know what God is saying to John? John, what you're going through, none of it has escaped my notice. And when I come, I am the king. And when I come, justice will reign down on the earth like water covers the sea. You go through those circumstances and trouble and pain and suffering and what you really want to know. That's really what happened in the Monday Night Football game. People are like, yeah, how could he miss that? He'll never miss something. He'll never make a wrong call. His justice will never in the end frustrate you. Do you know this, Jesus? Do you know the Jesus who died for you? Who rose again and lives for you? Who is utterly victorious over all of your sin and wickedness? Who can in a moment annihilate it through his shed blood? Do you know him? Do you know the one who sees all things? Can you rest before him? Will you go to him saying, Jesus, I understand. You see everything in my life, the hidden things in my life. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Save me. Rescue me. You see, folks, I think the thrust of this text is this. Look at Jesus. 
in, in the midst of all of your concerns, in your concerns about the temporal affairs of the world that you live in, of the nation that God has placed you in and given you the privilege of living in, when things trouble you, when they bother you and you're wondering, will there be just? Will, will I see things the way that I want them to be? Maybe. Maybe not. What can you be assured of? They will be the way that Jesus wants them to be. Because as the lion, he is majestic. And as the lamb, he is meek and pays for your sin. And bound up in this picture is a glorious hope. He has the power to deal with every struggle you face. He has the love to forgive every sin that you've committed by his shed blood. Because for your sin, he was slain. Do you know him? Have you trusted him? And verse 7 brings us to the climax of the text. Because this is where it's all going to, doesn't it? John is waiting for someone to take the scroll. No one comes. He begins to cry. They say to him, John, see the lion. See the lamb. And what does this lion-lamb image do? He came and he took the scroll from the right hand, the place of authority of the one who sits in the place of ultimate authority. Jesus comes. And the scroll that is the rest of world history, he takes up. And what does he do? He says this to you and I. I've conquered life and death. Your greatest fear dealt with. Done. Defeated. And he offers us hope that the future of our lives, the future of our country, is secure in his hands. And when he took it, all heaven breaks loose. Look at verse 8. When he had taken it, because all of heaven is what? Waiting with, excuse me, with bated breath for what? For the fullness of God's plan. It's the same thing that you and I are waiting for. It's what every NFL fan was waiting for. The refs are back. Yay, good. We'll get fair calls. No, you won't. They don't have seven eyes. They don't have that kind of knowledge. You're still going to be frustrated. But in heaven, when Jesus is revealed, what happens? All of heaven breaks loose. Why? Because the beginning of the end has been set into motion by the one who has the authority and capacity to control it. And the response of heaven, the response of humanity, to me, is utterly fascinating. They fell down and worshipped. One writer has said, if a governor walks in, it's appropriate to stand. If a president walks in, you stand and applaud. But when Jesus walks in, it is all so inappropriate. It is all so inappropriate. What do you do? You fall down. Twice in this text, it says that the heavenly beings, they fall down. Doing what? Paying homage, paying respect, giving honor, giving glory to the one who deserves all of it. He is praised 8 through 10 by redeemed sinners. Why? Notice what it says in verse 9. It says, you're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain in the past with abiding results and with your blood you have purchased men from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation and you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God. And they, folks, listen to this because this is ultimate justice. They will reign on the earth. Now you might say, whoa. What's that a fulfillment of? Matthew chapter 6. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, Father, thy kingdom come. 
Thy will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. And folks, here's the promise of this text. One day, all of your frustrations with injustice, all of your disgust with ill treatment, all of your sadness over genocide across the world, all of it will be rectified. Because one day, Jesus Christ will come. And when he comes, what is he doing? He's setting up a kingdom. And everyone who is trusted in his shed blood will be ushered into this glorious and unbelievable picture. He is praised by those that are redeemed. Tears in this context are gone. Anxiety is vanquished. The future of God's people is secure. And folks, this ultimately is why I think, as believers, we need to strike a balance. Okay, and here's the balance. The balance is that I live in a world where I have the right to exercise my vote, and I should. I have the freedom to talk about my convictions, my beliefs, what I, the way that I think things should be, or the way that I think things would be best, with the humility that says, you know what, I know I don't understand all these things. I don't understand all the nuances of financial issues and medical issues and health care. I don't understand all that stuff. I am not that good. So I weigh in with a sense of what? With a sense of humility. But here's what I need to realize. As I weigh in on those political issues and on financial issues and all the things that kind of churn in our minds and keep some of us awake in bed at night, what do we need to remember? What I need to remember is that the center of God's kingdom is not politics. At the center of God's kingdom is the gospel. What this text should excite you about is here's the lamb. He was slain, yet he's standing. And he has purchased for himself out of every tribe, tongue, and nation, people. What should excite our hearts? What should drive us? Do you understand what I'm saying? What, what should really have our passion? Here's my struggle. A lot of times, I'll get in discussions about politics, and I can go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. I mean, I, I try to stay pretty well-informed. Okay, and I, but I have to be honest with you. I don't leave those discussions saying, yeah, I feel good. I don't. I, oh, my God. It's just like, if discussions about politics jazz me, capture me, drive me more than discussions about the gospel, I will become pessimistic because I am placing my hope in the wrong thing. I'm placing my hope in fallen men who run a fallen system in a fallen world. And this is not the end. Okay, the biblical worldview is that the gospel matters more than anything. And the thing that I should want to communicate with people is not my political point of view at the end of the day. What I should really want people to know is Christ. So if your discussion of politics is shutting down opportunities to share the gospel, I'd encourage you to do this. Reevaluate your perspective. If your view of the political scene is driving you to pessimism, Shift your focus. Shift your focus. So the elder says to John, hey, John, stop looking at all that stuff. See the lamb. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the end result of that is the rest of the chapter. Heaven breaks loose praise and glory from people, angels. How many? Thousands upon thousands and ten thousands upon ten thousands. And I'm in my office thinking, how many is that? I'm like, stop. It's a picture. It's a picture that just all of heaven 
in unbelievable ways is exalting Jesus. So what should I do? I mean, if heaven spends all of its time praising Christ and exalting Christ as the hope of the nations, not a party, not a man, not a woman, but Christ. Okay, and what will I find? I will find that I will put my anxiety in its proper place, which is a casket, dead. And I, find, well, I will find that in Jesus Christ, there is hope. There is security. There is encouragement for everyone who believes. May God help us in this election season to be people of the lion and people of the lamb. Who, when we see him, just like in the movie, The Chronicles of Narnia, when he comes, when he emerges, what happens? You get this in the actors, a surge of confidence, a surge of hope, a brightening of the eyes, an optimism that says, you know what, for us, he is king. And folks, I, that's, what I, that's what I hope as we engage in the debate and the discussion that takes place over the next month, that the thing that brightens our eyes will be talk of the gospel. It'll be talk of the one who was slain so that he could purchase from all over the world people for himself. And may God help us to participate in that endeavor with a higher passion than we do anything else for the glory of the Lamb that was slain. Would you bow your heads with me?